electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Thank you, Jerome Powell, for making this quarter-point rate hike into a bit of a non-event. Stock market roared going into the Fed meeting, then sold back down after the Fed chief gave a good account of himself in the press conference. Dow ultimately slipping 45 points, S&P losing 0.8%, NASDAQ dipping 0.26%. The rally into the hike seemed a little silly to me. I don't know about you. Hence the decline after, but I do think we've cleared a major obstacle. There's still the rest of the obstacle course to deal with, the controversial obstacle course. Unfortunately, we have a ton of controversies weighing on the market here. Uh, Tariffs, government shutdowns, some earnings disappointments, and they aren't going away just because the new Fed chairman did a real good job on his first outing. One thing is certain, though. It is undeniable that rate hikes, any rate hikes, do indeed slow down the economy, which is why that big rally into the Rate hike seems so silly to me. So I think it's probably a good moment to take a look at a group that's been bouncing all over the place, but has historically done very well for those who think there's going to be a decelerating pace of growth because of the hikes. And you know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about the left for dead turbocharged stocks collectively known as FANG. Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google now Alphabet. When you hear all the negatives surrounding Facebook of late, it tends to reflect poorly on that whole group. Why not? Did you know that there are 10 ETFs that contain Facebook, and it has the power to overwhelm all of them, and it's been doing it? Nevertheless, you can't write off FANG because these are dynamic institutions. They're constantly evolving. The bears view them as static, which is why all the reports of FANG's demise have proven to be premature, but we got to keep testing them. And it's not just the original FANG. Let's elongate the acronym to FANG by including both Apple and NVIDIA, even if it reveals the spelling error. It sounds truly repulsive using my Philadelphia accent. Thank you, Philadelphia Eagles, for giving all of us from the city of brotherly love a reprieve from our terrible nasal twang. 
So let's break them down or unpack them. You know, I keep hearing that word on all these conference calls. It reminds me of like I'm on like a Samsonite call or a Toomey call. We'll leave Facebook for last because these issues need to be addressed separately. If you want to understand the level of dynamism here, you got to look at Amazon. For years, we viewed this company as a retailer. That's a huge total addressable market, or TAM, but no way it would ever merit the company's current $768 billion valuation. No, Amazon took itself to the next level by making two additions, the web services and the advertising business. The more I learn about Amazon Web Services, and I've been working on it every single day, the more I realize that its competitors at Microsoft and Google and to some degree IBM just can't come close to Amazon's capabilities. And I say that as someone who owns all three stocks for his charitable trust, meaning we own we own Google, we own Amazon, okay, and we own Microsoft, Google being, of course, Alphabet. And you can follow all of those by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. Now, if you want to move your business into the cloud, the first choice is indeed Amazon. The latest growth spurt, though, came from people getting their heads around the idea that Amazon could be a huge player in the advertising uh, equation. It's now a triple threat that bounces back faster than any other stock in the market, including yesterday. And you know what? When you look at it, it really didn't give up that much from the 40-point gain. I mean, come on, let's give it a break. $4 decline. Next up, Apple stock has become divorced from Apple, the company. On some days, it's caught up in the technology more. In others, investors treat it as it's the best consumer product story on earth. That group's been weaker today. Apple doesn't fare well among the tech analysts who follow it because they care about small-scale small surveys of component suppliers or reports that the iPhone 10 is lagging or that the company's not innovating at the base of other FANG members. Or most pertinent, they do fear a backlash, a backlash against Apple if President Trump comes down too hard on China and theft of intellectual property when he talks tomorrow on the topic. The people who sold Apple today off of China believe that Apple could be retaliation roadkill. <laughs> The thing is, that's the wrong way to analyze Apple. The right way, I say, take your cue from Warren Buffett, who talks about how Apple's customer satisfaction is off the charts and how it's ridiculous that the stock sells for 15 times earnings. When, say, Procter & Gamble trades at, uh, I don't know, uh, 18, uh, Colgate at 21, Estee Lauder at 33 times. And yet, as a consumer products play, Apple plainly superior to every single one of those guys. And I kind of like them, especially EL. Today, the technology analysts and survey monkeys, pun intended, generated the usual negative chatter. But every time people sell this stock based on sales worries or China worries, we remember the annuity streams, the universality of the ecosystem, and the stock does bounce back. How about Netflix? Is it overvalued at $137 billion? Jeez, I remember when it was overvalued at $37 billion. The issue is that Netflix makes a product people love, and it's taking over the world. At the end of the day, the stock keeps surging because Netflix knows exactly what we want, thanks to their huge data set and terrific artificial intelligence and the brain of the CEO, Reed Hastings. I wouldn't necessarily chase it, but pull back, it's fine. Next up, NVIDIA. It's certainly worth joining Fang now that it has a $151 billion valuation. In the old days, NVIDIA made the best graphics processors. They were gamer chips. Then they made the best chips for automobiles. Uh, then for the cloud. Then for data mining and artificial intelligence and machine learning. Oh, throw in that crypto stuff if you want to. This is serial greatness, and it's happening because CEO Jensen Wong is currently harvesting chips that he and his team dreamed up 
10 or 20 years ago, not last week, last month, or last year, to handle an immense amount of data without running too hot. That's NVIDIA. How about Alphabet? Not that long ago, we were writing this company off for its inability to police YouTube to the point where they were running normal ads next to neo-Nazi cryptocurrency content. Well, guess what? They put their minds to it and have once again become a great place to advertise. We always liked their search. They just kept making it better and better. My hope here is that Alphabet's self-driving car business, Waymo, will, will take over this industry but this recent fatality is going to cause somewhat of a pause in the industry as it should. But ultimately, I believe the pause will be temporary, though, because self-driving cars are safer than people driving cars. Look, Alphabet remains the gold standard for the web. And yet the stock's price earnings multiple has been contracting because the company got too aggressive in its forecast. That's why it keeps getting hammered on its earnings reports and then comes back as people forgot why they sold it. Finally, elephant in the room, Facebook. What can I say? Mark Zuckerberg's statement today, it was a start. I was going to call it a decent start, but I took the word decent out. If Facebook addresses the situation by bringing in a top-notch outside counsel, like Paul Weiss, who went to work on the tough NFL and Fox issues to investigate the way they handled their user data, that's how you restore a lot of trust. Paul Weiss is a chips may fall out, but they're not, they don't play for dinner. They're not trying to please Zook. It would be very helpful to hear from some of Facebook's directors, the outside directors, like Ken Chenault of Merck Express. Remember, he used to be the CEO. Dr. Susan uh, Desmond Hellman, a doctor who runs the Gates Foundation, or Washington Insider Erskine Bowles. Statements, even apologetic statements like the one posted by Mark Zuckerberg, are not enough to appease the jackals anymore. Only an independent investigation ordered by the outside directors can do that now. I also recommended Ken Feinberg last night. I reiterate that. But let me tell you why I don't think the pseudo-data breach matters long-term. It's simple. Say you are outraged about this. What are you going to do? Delete your account? Sure, for a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks. Ultimately, though, there's no place else to go. Sure, many people pan Facebook these days, but they just move over to the Facebook owns Instagram. Snap changes format. Mm, not a good one. Twitter's not really a comparable product. They don't serve as legitimate alternatives because there are none. Honestly, the reason why people are so angry at Facebook is because it has virtual monopoly power over this portion of social media. They may eventually get them into trouble, that kind of power, but being a virtual monopoly is the definition of a high-quality problem. One that grows 40% and sells at 18 times earnings? I don't know. I'm close to hitting the buy button. So Fang lives because Fang is dynamic, not static. When you only view these companies as what they are, not what they will be a year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now, you miss the whole story. That said, this is not necessarily the ideal group to buy in a strong economy. I think Fang is oddly defensive because it has growth regardless of what happens in Washington or even the broader economy. But rate hikes in earnest always bring about a sea change shift to companies with growth that can overpower the business cycle decline. Bottom line, in an incredibly challenged market, you actually may want to fall back on FANG. This group is not going away. It's just recharging in preparation for its next move higher. Justin in North Carolina. Justin. Justin. Uh, hey, Kramer. How you doing? All right. How are you? you? I'm doing good. Um, my question is about Jackson & Jackson. Some really big news last night from the CFO set to retire. Um, the stock price didn't really seem to care. Do you think that'll change, or do you think investors should go ahead and buy this small dip? 
You know, I, I happened to be at a uh, I happened to be at a CFO conference sponsored by EY last night, and I've got to tell you, Dominic Caruso may be one of my absolute favorite CFOs. I've been with him tons of times. He is fantastic. He will be missed, but Alex Gorsi's got a deep bench. J and J's as cheap as I've seen it in many years. Don't run from run two. Adam in Michigan. Adam, a big booyah, Jim from Mount Pleasant, Michigan. All right, that sounds good to me. What's going on? My question is on FireEye and uh, has two parts. So amid the rumors of an acquisition by Cisco or Symantec, do you consider FireEye currently a buy, hold, or sell? I'm taking Cisco right out of the equation right now. I do not think Cisco is going to buy FireEye. I don't know about Symantec. But I'll tell you something. I heard Kevin Mandia speak to us last week from the San Francisco Bureau of CNBC, and I was quite impressed with the man. I think FireEye is a winner, not a loser. I'd be a buyer. Tony in Michigan. Stick with Michigan. Tony. A big hell to the Victor Booyah from Michigan, Mr. Kramer. Well, I got University of Michigan go a little deeper in this uh, in the 20. What's going on? I was uh, curious about Mule, M-U-L-E. How do you think the investors are, are feeling about the acquisition of Mule? Well, they should Salesforce? be thrilled, man. They've made a fortune. But they should ka-ching, ka-ching. Here's the problem. Now, I know we got to get Mark Penny off to talk about this acquisition, but I thought a lot of it was just game aimed at trying to get business from uh, that SAPS. Why would you ultimately over and over mention Unilever and Coca-Cola as things that MuleSoft has? Because those are dyed-in-the-wool SAP clients. Want to know what to buy regardless of what happens in Washington? But if we get a slowdown because of the Fed or we're worried about tariffs, I know it sounds counterintuitive, but you want to look no further than fine. The new fact. Yeah, that's what you buy when people start worrying that the Fed's hiking too fast. And that will be the narrative tomorrow. Believe me. Oh, man, money tonight. Ulta's fall from grace may seem ugly to this market. But is there some poker tube underneath the surface here now that the company started reporting some better numbers? I'm going to investigate. Then McDonald's hasn't been serving up many smiles lately. I still like my egg muffin. But could its recent decline offer a chance to buy? And how FedEx's view of free trade could define the next big move in this market. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Few things are more agonizing than watching a momentum stock lose its mojo. When a fast-growing, high-flying momentum name breaks, it turns into a falling knife that will cut anyone who tries to catch it on the way down. For most of the last 10 months, that has been the exact story of Ulta Beauty. The tragedy here is that Ulta had been as beloved as it gets. It was a total market darling. From the lows during the financial crisis to its highs late last spring, the stock had surged from $5 to $314. And this happened during a time when bricks and mortar retail had very much fallen out of favor with the Wall Street fashion show. Ulta was the hottest, best run, fastest growing old school retailer around. Chain sells everything you need to look your selfie best. And they also provide salon services to get people coming back to the stores and back to the store, meaning it's the back of the store where the salon is. It's a great model, and the stock made you a fortune on the way up. 
But then the company's growth started slowing, and suddenly Ulta lost its appeal. The stock ended up losing 40% of its value from peak to trough, tumbling as low as $188 in October. And while it tried to make a comeback in November and December, those gains were quickly repealed over the course of January and February. However, recently the action here makes me wonder if maybe, just maybe, Ulta Beauty has finally bottomed, even if it sounds like this. First, it started bouncing over this month. By itself, that's meaningless. Ulta bounced in November, and the gains quickly evaporated. But then last Thursday, the company reported a not-so-hot quarter that was widely viewed as a disappointment. And the darn thing, what did it do? It roared not lower, but higher, from $206 to $221. Now, look, when the stock surges on bad news, you know what? That's a very bullish sign. In fact, it's a classic tell of a bottom because it signals that your weak-handed fellow shareholders have at last capitulated. When all of the bulls who are going to sell have sold, it usually means the stock in question is bottoming, or at least done going down hard. So you better believe it caught my attention when Ulta spiked on a less than stellar number. All things considered, I think Ulta Beauty is back. Even after the latest bounce, I recommend buying some because the stock has fallen to levels where it's become too cheap to ignore. And by the way, it's cohort. It's cohort in the bricks and mortar section. Have you noticed that that's become the standout? And while the fundamentals aren't as great as they used to be at Ulta, they're good enough to justify buying the stock at its current valuation, particularly with the rest of retail moving. But before we get into why I like Ulta here, we need to address why the stock fell out of favor in the first place. Some of this simply boils down to the law of large numbers. Ulta had been growing at an incredible rapid pace for years, and over the course of 2017, that pace did begin to slacken. Just look at the same store sales, the key metric in retail. After years of putting up numbers in the low to mid-teens, the numbers gradually declined from 16.6% in the fourth quarter of 2016 to 10.3% in the third quarter of 2017. That one's still pretty great in absolute terms. I don't have a lot of retailers that did better than that, but it's substantially worse than the results Ulta been putting up a few quarters earlier. At the same time, the company's margins were declining, too. Everyone who owned this stock because it was the fastest grower in the group wanted out once the numbers started decelerating. Hence why the stock just kept getting hammered. However, it's not like the story suddenly became terrible. Ulta's like an A-plus student that turned in an A-minus or B-plus student paper, okay? At the worst. Maybe a midterm. You know, not the final, even. It stopped being a perfect retailer and instead became a merely very good retailer. The thing is, at some level, very good retailer is absolutely worth buying. And I think we may have found that exact level. After getting pounded again in January and February, the stock turned around at $191 on March 2nd, just a few bucks above where it bottomed in October. It then rallied 15 straight points over the next two weeks in anticipation of the company's next quarter. Some of that was simply because uh, early March was a good time for the broader market. But a lot of it had to do with analysts coming off the sidelines and beginning to recommend the stock. It was enough time spent in purgatory. Fast forward to last Thursday night when Ulta reported its latest results. And the numbers were far from perfect. They weren't bad, but they came in below expectations pretty much across the board. Revenue and earnings both came in a bit light, even as the company delivered a 226 percent revenue growth rate. Hey, that's pretty good, too. Wall Street was looking for 9% same-store sales growth. Ulta had always used to blow that number away. Well, guess what? 
Ulta gave you an 8.8%. Okay, we wanted to see a 34.4 gross margin. That's what they made uh, after the cost of goods sold. But the number came in at 34. And the guidance was a little underwhelming, too, with the company forecasting 6 to 8% same-store sales growth. The full year, the analysts were expecting 8.3%. The earnings and revenue forecast came closer to hitting the mark, but they also fell short. But just short by a little, not by a mile. In my view, it was an okay quarter. But with each and every important line item disappoints versus expectations, you got to expect the stock to get hit, especially when that stock had already run up going into the quarter. Initially, Ulta shares dropped over 6% when they read those, uh, those statements within minutes of the release after hours trading. Of course, no one listened to the conference call. See, the analysts cut their price targets en masse, though, when they, took, when they parsed the numbers. But then something interesting happened. When Ulta started trading the next day, the stock actually opened higher, not lower, at $210, up about 2% from the previous close. And that changed everything. Once people realized that some bold investors were willing to dip their toes back into Ulta's stock, we saw a wave of buyers following suit. By the close of trading on Friday, the darn thing had vaulted $15 and change, or 7.6%. How the heck did it, is that even possible? Simple. The key here is that Ulta reset expectations, and that is the term, by the way, and expectations reset. That's the term on Wall Street, and now you know it. Anyone who was clinging to the hope that Ulta would return to its old status quo charge, uh, turbocharged momentum, well, they got wiped out at the close of uh, Thursday night. The weaker-than-expected numbers and trim guidance, along with management's commentary on the conference call, might as well have said, don't own our stock if you're going to be disappointed with anything less than double-digit same-store sales. Uh, all last year, Ulta struggled with credit expectations. I don't mean the tickets novel. The company had put up such incredible numbers for so long that investors freaked out when they started delivering merely good results rather than the earth-shattering figures that they'd gotten used to. But the reaction in the latest quarter tells us they've gotten over that hump. Rather than selling off because the results were worse than expected, the stock soared. But it's not just the expectations game. Ulta's taking action to improve their situation, including making investments in e-commerce, supply chain improvements, better store design, retaining good employees, and even artificial intelligence, AI, all in order to generate better earnings growth going forward. That's why the earnings guidance was a bit light. They're spending money to make money. The key here came from CFO Scott Setterston on the conference call. He said that come 2019, the company expects to grow earnings at a 20% clip, driven in part by modest margin expansion. In short, you now have something to look forward to. Oh, and the icing on the cake? Ulta rolled out a brand new $625 million buyback authorization. Do you know what? I know that sounds small for the, some of the bigger companies, but that is around 5% of the market capitalization of Ulta Beauty. And I think that's very well-timed. Here's the bottom line about one of my old favorites that we had to walk away from. When a company reports a supposedly disappointing quarter and its stock surges anyway, that's it. That's a classic sign of a bottom, which is one of the reasons why I'm recommending Ulta Beauty stock right here. Throw in all the growth-boosting initiatives management talked about in the conference call and the fact that stock trades at about 20 times earnings. Remember, I used to trade double that? And I think it's just gotten plain too cheap to ignore. Bye, bye, bye. Much more mad money ahead, including my take on McDonald's. The fast food chain is off to an uninspiring start in 2018. Hey, maybe it's time to sell. Or could the recent dip be a value meal for your portfolio? Then, does your portfolio have what it takes to survive the unknowns in the market? I'll be the judge when we play M. I diversified. 
and the tale of two cuddlers. I'll tell you how the chief economic advisor could impact this market going forward. So stick with Kramer. This is a more challenging environment than we had a few months ago. Remember, I keep talking about the controversy, but some stocks have come down way too far from their highs, and you've got to start thinking about pouncing on them. For example, did you know that the stock of McDonald's, run by the fabulous Steve Easterbrook, is currently in correction territory, down nearly 11% from its late January highs? And that's after the stock's rebound from its recent lows. Three weeks ago, it was down 18%, and that is nearly bear market territory. Sure, the stock went up too high, but now we have to ask, has it come down too low? Under Easterbrook's leadership, McDonald's been one of the greatest stories in the industry. He took over three years ago, revamped the menu to focus on value, rolled out all-day breakfast, got the franchisees on board, with the result that the stock's up more than 60% since he came in, more than double the gains from the S&P 500 of the same period. At a time when so many restaurants were struggling, McDonald's was on top of the world. That makes the recent sell-off here the more jarring. And while the stock has been bouncing in recent weeks, the pullback was severe enough that I think it's worth reassessing this story to make sure McDonald's is still worth owning in this new, again, more risky environment. The answer, not only is McDonald's stock getting attractive, I think you've been giving a pretty good entry point here. Okay, it's not as amazing as a few weeks ago, but it may be too good to pass up. The whole point of this show is to teach you how to become a better investor. So let me explain how we get there and why McDonald's may be right into the selling that I expect now that we've got this Fed meeting over, but everybody's not that happy. First of all, don't forget that Steve Easterbrook has engineered one of the greatest turnarounds in restaurant history. When he took over, McDonald's was lost at sea, with shrinking global same-store sales down 1% in 2014. Wow. Last year, they were up 5.3%. Not just good compared to where McDonald's was, but much better than the vast majority of publicly traded restaurant chains. At the same time, the company became a much more efficient operator. Its gross margins, what left after the cost of goods sold, had surged from, get this, 38.5% in 2015 to an astounding 46.5% last year. That's a huge gain, and it translated into terrific double-digit earnings growth. Oh, and talk about shareholder-friendly. Do you know in the three years he's been in charge, Easterbrook's voracious buybacks have shrunk the company's share count by an astounding 17%. Holy cow, it's, it's like he's trying to take McDonald's private. How did Easterbrook pull all this good stuff off? Well, one of his earliest and savviest moves was to placate the company's franchisees. Before he came in, they were a disgruntled bunch. After years of underperformance, who can blame them? But the franchisees are McDonald's. They run the vast majority of locations, so they need to be kept happy. Easterbrook listened to their ideas. Actually, listen, he treated them like valued partners, really took them seriously, got them on board with his own turnaround plans. That's made it much easier for him to roll out all of these new initiatives. Digital kiosks, something he uh, saw overseas. A new mobile app with 20 million users in the U.S. alone, about time. And even delivery, now available at 10,000 locations around the world. Of course, there's the value meal in the old day breakfast, both of which have been incredibly successful. In general, Easterbrook has made McDonald's a better place to be. When he took over, I got in touch with him. I said my first advice to him was to clean up the bathrooms. 
Hey, people laugh but, uh, when I tell them that story, but Easterbrook took me seriously, and the improvement here is a microcosm of what he's done for the whole company. Oh, and one more thing. Last year, McDonald's sold, a, sold its Chinese business to a bunch of private equity guys for just over $2 billion. With everyone fretting about the president's new tariff on China, possible retaliation from the PRC, some uh, intellectual property changes the president's saber rattling about, what can I say? Easterbrook's decision looks better by the day. So then why the heck has the stock been hit so hard lately? Well, in part, it's because McDonald's had the misfortune of reporting uh, uh, its latest quarter on January 29th. Well, guess what that was? That was right as the market was taking a real turn for the worse. Even though the company delivered a big top and bottom line beat with stronger than expected same-store sales and excellent guidance, well, you know what? The stock had run up so much, it got slammed anyway. It fell 3%. Part of that, again, was simply because the whole market got hit, but part of it was the stock had accelerated too greatly. As much as I thought this quarter was a good quarter, there were some legitimate issues that people seized on as a a reason to sell. First of all, and this was really, uh, let's just say, mind-boggling. The CFO, Kevin Ozan, told us, and I quote, looking forward, we expect 2018 results to be even a little more choppy with U.S. tax reform and a new revenue recognition accounting standard that went into effect January 1st of this year. Choppy? Choppy? I mean, that stopped a lot of buyers in their tracks. Everything's going nicely. And then the CFO, CFO, he tells you things are going choppy. This is choppy. What the heck does choppy even mean? Three different analysts called out that one word in the reaction to the quarter. This one shook a lot of people up. Second, there's tax reform. After the surprise passage of the huge corporate tax cut, many restaurants' stocks surged as investors figured they'd be major beneficiaries, since they tend to pay full freight tax-wise. But it seems some of them forgot that McDonald's is a sprawling global operator, not some pure-play domestic chain. The company predicted it's going to have a 25 to 27% effective tax rate down from 31 to 33. But still, a lot, still, I mean, it's higher than many of these analysts had hoped for. The problem, of course, is that they still need to pay tons of taxes overseas. Now, to be honest, this should not have been a surprise to anyone who's actually done the homework. But this kind of mistake happens all the time. Wow, tax rate too high. Finally, McDonald's told us that the top priority for its tax reform savings would be an accelerating of its investments in reimagining the restaurants. The company's spending $6 billion to give its U.S. business a facelift over the next two years. To the investors who appreciate Steve Easterbrook's vision and his incredible success, this was great news. To the ones who wanted a bigger dividend or a larger buyback and think that any investment is a mistake, well, it was a disappointment. And that's why the stock started selling off. Then we got hit with the gigantic market-wide declines in early February, and McDonald's came down along with everything else. Remember, during these panic sell-offs, cash-strapped hedge funds tend to sell their winners first as a source of funds. Plus, McDonald's is part of every major Dow and SP index. When they go down, it goes down with them. The last leg lower came on March 2nd, when the analysts at RBC Capital published what I can only describe as a hit job on McDonald's stock, lowering the price target from 190 to 170. The reason? The analysts slashed their same store sales numbers, their forecast, because the company's new $1, $2, $3 value menu is off to a slow start. That took the stock down to its lowest level in nearly nine months. In retrospect, though, it was a terrific buying opportunity with the stock up more than 7% since. My view, 
The fundamental story with McDonald's is still intact. I think McDonald's has a lot going for it. And if they give us more quarters like that last one, I think the stock switches direction, pivots, and goes higher. The bottom line, this pullback in the stock of McDonald's is totally overblown. The only real piece of news here that the company's going to invest its tax savings and growth initiatives is good news, not bad news. As far as I'm concerned, the current discount is a gift. And the only thing that happened is that its stock got too hot too fast. And that's now been taken care of by the sell-off. Let's go to Michael in California. Michael. Hey, Jim. Michael. Hey, Jim. After watching your interview with Grubhub CEO and hearing about the immigration with Yelp and being a Grubhub user myself, I bought a short position in the company and realized a 20% gain. But I'm kicking myself because I missed out on that post earnings pop. Jim, is it too late to get back in or should I wait for a pullback? I want to hear from Grubb that they have enough delivery people. I know this is a real high-quality problem, but it is a problem. There literally is too much demand for Grubhub, and there's not enough people who are able to, who are willing to deliver. I think they're going to solve that problem, but Grubhub is a very good company. I do want them to address what I just mentioned, though, before I'm going to tell you to get into it. Let's go to Galen in Illinois. Galen. Hey, Jim. Big booyah to you, brother. Thank you for calling. Yeah, I appreciate everything you do. Love your show. Thank you. Hey, uh, you bet. Hey, the stock I've been watching for a while, uh, it's kind of taking, it's been flat. It's kind of taking a dip here lately. That's uh, Coca-Cola. Uh, what's your take on that? Is that a buy? Well, you know what? This whole group has just gotten crushed again. And one of the reasons why it's gotten crushed is raw costs of going higher for freight. We keep hearing that, and people, I think, are going to say, well, wait a second, that's going to hurt Coca-Cola. It's a 3.6% yielder. It sells at 20 times earnings. I'm going to say something that I, that I have said about this stock for many years. No one ever got hurt owning the stock of Coca-Cola. But for me, no Coke, PepsiCo. The Golden Arches may have lost their mojo as of late, but I think the pullback is overblown. The stock of McDonald's, I'm liking it here. They have much more mad money yet, with Larry Kudlow taking over as Trump's economic advisor. I'll tell you what it could mean for the stock market. Tariffs, trade. That after today's rate hike is your portfolio. Prepare for what's next. I'll be the judge of that when we play MI Diversified. And oil calls, rapid fire, tonight's edition of the lightning round. So stick with Kramer. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. Very nice. Good Indeed. talking to you today. I'll see you in Volgograd for the first round, right? We play Tunisia. Tunisia versus England. Tunisia. Then we go to Kaliningrad. Okay. Uh, yeah, it'll be fun. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. I told you last week that the best way to create a Washington-proof portfolio, can you believe it or not, we're back in that world, is to be diversified. Well, the same goes for market volatility, just like we saw in today's roller coaster session. you got to stay diversified. Diversification is a concept I always circle back to because it stands true no matter what's going on all around us, including a day like today. It's why we play Am I Diversified? <laughs> we have to, okay? It's to help investors build resilient portfolios for any market condition. So without further ado, let's play a another round. This is where you call me, you tell me your top five holdings, and I tell you if your portfolio is diversified enough or if you need to mix it up a little. So let's start with a tweet from at SportsFan832, who says, at Jim Kramer, at Mad Money on CNBC, am I diversified? Goldman 
Apple, Netflix, Raytheon, Honeywell. All right, here we go. Look at this. All right. These are, wow, uh, this is club members of Axelors. No, Honeywell, Apple, Goldman, and Raytheon. Those are all four of our names. Okay, Honeywell is diversified manufacturer. I think they're terrific. They're splitting up a little. Apple, well, you know what I say. Own, don't trade it. People keep trading it. Goldman Sachs is the ideal stock to own in this uh, moment of volatility, and it's very inexpensive. Netflix, it's the most expensive stock in FANG, but I understand the love for it. And Raytheon, when the president speaks to anybody in the Middle East, like he did today. He says, buy stuff from Raytheon. Of course, he doesn't say it point blank like that. But that is the biggest, that is the biggest defense contractor in terms of the president being an arms salesman in chief. So we have defense, we have tech, we have entertainment, we have finance, and we have industrial. That is perfect. Now we got to go to Richard in New York. Richard. Hi, JC. This is our own here. Paying attention to your due discipline and your constant diligence, I was able to retire early using your knowledge, best of breeds, buying on the dip. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful thing. And I well, that's what we want. Hungry. That's what we want. What's going on? <laughs> Today I'm calling to ensure that I'm diversified, and my stocks are Netflix, Facebook, Apple, Bank of America, and General Dynamic. Whoa. Okay. Well, let's see. All right, you got the uh, you got Facebook now. Zuckerberg did not do what I wanted. He did not go the extra mile. He did a statement. It was not what we thought should happen. Therefore, the stock can't rally until I, he puts my game plan in, which I talked about at the top of the show. So Facebook is uh, let's call it social media. Netflix is entertainment. We went over that uh, expensive stock in Fang. Uh, more expensive, by the way, than Amazon. I can make a case for that based on Amazon's different divisions. Uh, Apple owned, don't trade. General Dynamics, second to Raytheon in terms of defense. Bank of America, ideal in the rate hike world. So we've got a bank. We've got technology. We've got social media. I am dif- uh, differentiating. We've got entertainment, and we have defense, and I like it. Let's go to Bud in Ohio. Bud! Booyah, Ski Daddy. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, quite, quite. Oh, sure, Bud. What's up? Uh, Jim, this is a new portfolio I've put together for a nephew's education. Now, these five stocks do have one common feature. They all had an effective tax rate of over 35% last year, but I'm hoping they're otherwise diversified. They are Bassanol, SS&C Technology, Fleur Systems, Beckton Dickinson, and my turnaround play is Alaska Airlines. Am I diversified? Jeez, I'll tell you that. Alaska Air. Wow. Okay, 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 okay. All right, let's take a look at this. We're going to call this Software for Financial Services. All right, we're going to call FLUR. We're going to call, say it's cyber defense, which we absolutely, thermal engineering cyber defense, but uh, let's just call it defense, okay? Defense. We've got finance. We've got airline that I'm not crazy about. Fast and, um, and that's just because the airlines have gotten very hard with the Southwest news today. We got fast and all construction supplies. I like it. And Beckton's is doing terrific. So we have healthcare, cyber defense. Let's call it that. Financial service, uh, regular industrial, and airline. It's well diversified, but not with my favorite stocks. Can't have everything. We have money's back after the break. It is time! It's time for the Lightroom Christmas Report! 
Chief Economic Advisor really have on trade policy? I think it's legitimate to question this because his predecessor, Gary Cohn, certainly wasn't able to sway Trump to his way of thinking on free trade. But if you want to know where Larry stands on the actual issues, all you need to do is listen to the conference call from FedEx last night. In all the years I worked with Larry on Cudlow and Kramer, no executive came closer to his views than Fred Smith, the founder, chairman, and CEO of FedEx. Now, Fred doesn't hesitate to speak on issues of free trade because he can't afford to, too. He just can't. I mean, 
global commerce is his business. The key here is that Fred Smith is basically Larry's doppelganger, and he doesn't mince words on trade, saying, and I quote, I am reasonably certain everybody listening to this call has some sort of electronic device in your hand, a phone or an iPad, one sort of another. Go to your Google button and type in D-E-F, meaning definition, and put in the word tariff or tariffs, T-A-R-I-F-F. Everybody at the table do it, too, end quote. A tariff, of course, is a tax on a particular class of imports or exports. A tax. So Smith goes on to say that the benefits of tax reform will be offset by increased taxes from new tariffs. Uh, What about the need for a steel industry for national defense purposes? Holy cow. Smith is so scathing on this. Listen, if we have for national defense needs, in particular aluminum or specialty steel requirements, we would suggest to FedEx that these be bought by the government the same way that we buy up 35 fighters or M1A1 Abrams tanks, respectively, end quote. That's actually a pretty good idea, but it's not practical. Congress ain't going to ever authorize that. Smith goes on to explain why he's such a believer in unfettered free trade. And mind you, this is all in last night's call. you got to go listen. He says, quote, on the overall trade fund, I would like to give you a couple of numbers here that will probably surprise you. Our trade deficit in total goods and services 10 years ago was 4.9% of GDP. It is now 2.9%. It's down by two percentage points of GDP for a couple of major reasons. He then goes on to cite the incredible growth in fracking and the fact that we have a trade surplus in services, which includes logistics services like FedEx. More important, Smith thinks tariffs are simply bad. Let me direct you to his opening comments. He says, quote, FedEx is concerned about the prospect of increased protectionist tariffs as history has shown repeatedly that protectionism is counterproductive to economic growth. The better approach is to encourage open markets and free exchange of products and services to reduce barriers to trade, end quote. There you have it. Remember, Fred Smith comes closer to Larry Kudlow's views than anyone else we used to have on Kudlow and Kramer. So the question question is, which Larry Cutler are we going to get? The one with field leader Fred Smith's vision or the one of to Donald Trump's vision? It's an open question. And I think this clash of ideas will define the next big move for actually the stock market. If the pro-free trade fraction prevails, I think we do go higher. If they lose, I think we go lower starting tomorrow. If President Trump really hammers China with huge tariffs and the PRC retaliates against our tech giants, think Apple. You don't have to agree with Smith on all the particulars. I know I don't. But you do need to realize that the stock market very much agrees with him and needs him to prevail if we are going to go higher. Stick with Kramer. Okay, so we got through the Fed meeting today, but how about the protectionist tomorrow? Or some would say the fight tomorrow the president is going to initiate on intellectual property where the Chinese have just been pernicious all along. If it's too hard and we hear Apple chatter that's bad, you're going to get a bad day. Like I said, there's always more markets. I promise I'm just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer, and I will see you tomorrow. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.